This episode was brought to you by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 134. Happy New Year, Metamorphs! Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you part two of my Metamorph City novella, Whispers in the Wood. If you're new to this show, make sure to go back and listen to episode 133 to hear this story from the beginning. In last week's episode, we followed the psychic investigator, Abby Preston, as she attended a mysterious musical performance by Dr. Isaac Wells. Wells is a ragged, withered-looking man, but he possesses an extraordinary instrument, a glorious red violin called Threnody. When Wells plays the instrument, the people in the audience find the most painful and traumatic moments in their lives being sung back to them in the music. It's as if the violin is a channel for some higher power which is acknowledging their pain and joining with them in their suffering. Through Threnody, the universe itself seems to be weeping with them, and so they are no longer alone. But Abby notices something else during the performance, which the other listeners do not. As Wells plays, the stage is surrounded by hundreds of shades, the psychic echoes of people who have died. Abby watches as the shades are drawn to the violin, like moths around a flame. When they get too close, they vanish without a trace. Abby reports back to her client, the Lightbringer Field Commander, Janus Starson. Janus has taken an interest in Wells because of a disturbing pattern the Lothanasi have recently discovered. Each month, on the night of the new moon, someone who has heard Threnody's music has died under mysterious circumstances. Janus wants Abby to find out how Wells and Threnody are connected to the deaths, so they can stop the cycle before anyone else dies. Unfortunately, there isn't much time, because the next new moon is in three days. The next day, Abby goes to the boarding house where Wells is staying. The old professor is pleasant and courteous and he confirms one of Abby's suspicions. He has a latent psychic talent, which sometimes gives him impressions and flickers of memory when he touches an object. He insists, however, that what happens with Threnody is unlike anything else he has experienced. He doesn't know enough about either the violin nor his own talent to explain why. Abby asks permission to hold Threnody, hoping that her own ESP talent will tell her something useful if she can touch the instrument. As soon as she makes the suggestion, though, the air turns cold, and a shadow falls over the room. Wells explains that Threnody does not like strangers touching her, and he asks Abby to leave. She does so. With Abby gone, we see Isaac Wells desperately trying to comfort Threnody, assuring the violin that Abby meant no harm. A harsh voice answers him. She would have tried to turn you against us. That's what they do. That's what they all do. Isaac laments that Threnody's suspicious attitude has made their mission a very lonely one. At this, a breath of cinnamon and jasmine blows through the room, 
and a woman appears, placing her hand on the violin and silencing it. Isaac very carefully does not look at her, not when she tells him that she will tend to his needs, not when she takes off his pants and mounts him, and not when she slashes his skin with her fingernails and her forked tongue laps up the blood. She rides him to the heights of agony and ecstasy for an hour, and though he revels in her touch, he never opens his eyes. Some things man is not worthy to look upon, and there is beauty that is too terrible to see. Whispers in the Wood A Tale of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Part 2 Abby was waiting outside the music hall when Wells arrived that night. She waved to him in greeting, and he answered the gesture with an upraised hand. Good evening, he said as he approached. Miss Preston, was it? Abby nodded. Good to see you, Professor. I apologize if I gave offense this morning. She carefully did not specify whether she meant to him or to the violin. You did nothing wrong, my dear. Don't worry yourself about it. He stepped into the light of the street lamp then, and it took all of Abby's self-control not to gape at him. He looked like he had aged ten years overnight. The gray in his hair was more abundant than it had been even this morning. His skin was as pale and bloodless as a corpse. When he moved, it was with careful, deliberate steps, as if he did not trust his own legs to hold him. Still, for all that, he looked calm and focused, even content. It took Abby a moment to find her voice again. Well, I'm glad everything's all right then, she said at last. Would you mind if I listen while you warm up tonight? Not at all. Come, the manager will let us in the rear entrance. Once inside, Abby took a seat in the corner of the dingy practice room, between a mop and bucket and a stack of old placards for past performances. She watched as Wells rose in the bow and checked the tuning on Threnody's strings. It's funny, she said. For some reason I thought that a magic instrument wouldn't need tuning. Wells chuckled, a dry, hollow sound. The lady isn't magic, or at least not in the sense that you mean. No wizard has placed an enchantment on her. The luthier who crafted her had extraordinary talent, but she must be cared for like any other violin. Abby frowned. If that's true, then how does she... She gestured vaguely. Wells looked down at the violin, running a loving hand over the surface of the wood. I wish I had the words to explain it. I believe that she is connected to another kind of power, something older and greater than mortal magic. He looked up at Abby. Are you a universalist, Miss Preston? Abby shook her head. Mariahist. Well, sort of. Ah. Wells tuned another string, then fell silent a moment before speaking. There exists a primal form of energy that pervades the universe. A spiritual energy, you might call it. Universalists, such as myself, believe that this energy is the undifferentiated essence of the Creator. 
remnants of its being, scattered throughout the cosmos when it sacrificed itself to create the universe. I suppose that a Mariast might call it the breath of Eli. We call it the Newman. Abby found herself leaning forward, perched on the edge of her seat. And you think that Threnody is somehow connected to this Newman stuff? It seems plausible. The Newman is the raw substance of creation. It cannot be tamed or commanded by human will as manna can, yet it responds to us in strange and compelling ways. Some believe that the dreamlands themselves owe their existence to the Newman. Our fantasies and nightmares become real when touched by its power. He gestured down at the violin. If the Newman can respond to our dreams, perhaps it responds to our pain as well. Perhaps the universe recognized our suffering, and this fair lady became the vessel for its response. Abby nodded, but it was mostly to herself. Her mind was already mulling over other things she had seen and experienced, things that the Newman might be responsible for, if it was real and not just the product of a troubled man's imagination. She resolved to ask Janus about it as soon as possible. Have I frightened you, my dear? Abby looked up and blinked. Sorry? You look troubled, Wells said. I hope that I have not added to the burdens that already rest on those slim shoulders. She forced herself to smile. I'm all right. I just... She hesitated. Yes? I'm wondering what it does to a person to channel that kind of energy. She gestured at his near-skeletal form. No offense, Dr. Wells, but you don't look... healthy. Wells gave her an ironic smile. Indeed not, Miss Preston, but you needn't blame Threnody for that. With or without her, it would make little difference. I am dying. And that's all he said? Janus was pacing back and forth in a small hotel room across the street from Wells's boarding house. Abby thought he looked like a caged lion. Tremendous power, but no way to use it. No productive way, anyway. Pretty much, Abby said. I tried to get some details from him, but his thoughts were guarded, and I didn't want to pry. Some kind of cancer, I think, but I can't be sure. Hmm. Janus paused in front of the window and stared out of it for a long moment, brooding. What do you think about what he said? Abby asked. About the violin being a link to the Newman. Janus snorted. It's possible, but that doesn't tell us very much. The Newman is raw creative power, wild and unpredictable. No one understands it, least of all the creatures who are given life by it. That's the problem with blaming things on the Newman. It can explain anything, and therefore explains nothing. He may believe in this link, but I suspect he knows more than he told you. He paused. You said that he looked sicker than ever. Did he still play as well as the night before? As far as I could tell, yes. No signs of fatigue? Not during the performance. He looked really tired afterwards, but that's just like it was yesterday. Janus flexed his sword hand, clenching and unclenching it repeatedly. It doesn't add up, he muttered. Abby sat up a bit straighter. What doesn't? The lightbringer left the window and resumed pacing. The symptoms you've witnessed point to a very specific type of outsider. A Leonanshi. Abby cocked her head. Is that a kind of fairy? 
Yes, one of the stronger breeds. They're drawn to artists, musicians, poets, tortured men with some substantial talent. The Leonanshi offers them inspiration and companionship, but in exchange, she feeds on their blood and takes their life force. Artists who gain one as a patron usually have short, brilliant careers, ending in untimely deaths. And let me guess, they tend to pick people who are going to die young anyway. Janus smirked. When they can. They don't stay where they aren't wanted, but it's hard for most mortals to resist their charms. The Lothanasi discourage them from taking advantage of young men who have their whole lives ahead of them. Abby spread her hands. Well, obviously that's not an issue here. So what doesn't add up? The deaths at the new moon. Leia and Anshi aren't bound to a lunar cycle, and they only feed on one person at a time. They're also very committed to making sure that their artists become successful. Killing off members of the audience runs counter to that. Well, he said that Threnody doesn't like strangers touching her. Maybe she's afraid the instrument will be stolen. A thought struck her. Or maybe she just doesn't want him distracted. Hey, how many of the people who died were women? Janus pulled a notepad from his pocket and consulted it. Ten out of the fifteen that we know of. There may be others, of course, that we haven't gotten word of yet. We didn't become aware of the connection to Wells until a few weeks ago, so we've had to construct much of the information after the fact. Abby grimaced and slumped back in her chair. Two-thirds. Not exactly overwhelming evidence for the jealous lover theory. It doesn't fit, anyway, Janus said, putting away the pad. Leia and Anshi aren't threatened by mortals. They have no reason to be. No mortal woman is ever going to be able to compare to one of the high fae. Janus finally came over and sat down in the other chair. Alemisel lay on the coffee table in front of him, and he took it up with the same reverence that Abby had seen Wells show toward Threnody. The Lightbringer ran his fingers over the pommel, apparently lost in thought, or maybe communing with the sword. There was an intelligence there, but nothing that Abby's power could touch. Maybe this Leonanshi is crazy, Abby said, after a long moment. Is that possible? The blonde man grimaced. By human standards, all Fae are insane. The question is whether her insanity is substantially different from that of her sister's. He looked up at Abby, but his eyes were distant. We're missing a piece, aren't we? Abby said. I believe so, yes. His eyes focused on her, and a glimmer of blue fire shone within them. I'll have our research division take another look at the death records, see if they have anything in common that would explain why the Leonanshi might kill them. In the meantime, I need you to try to make contact with her. If the violin is her link to Wells, then your gift is our best chance to reach her. A chill ran down Abby's spine. Wells seemed to think that was a really bad idea. It isn't my first choice either, Janus said grimly. But we need answers, and I don't think we're going to be able to get them unless we can talk to the fairy. And what if she's not willing to talk? Janus shrugged fractionally. Then I'll have to kill her. But I'd prefer to solve this without, as you say, a quick decapitation. Abby sighed. All right, I'll try it. And hope that Wells's muse is in a friendly mood. After Janus left the hotel room, Abby lay down on the bed and stared up at the ceiling. She was feeling drained after hearing Threnody's performance for a second night in a row. 
Her own sorrows were plentiful, and she found the violin's power to be less comforting than many in the audience did. Watching the shades gather and then vanish under the violin's influence disturbed her on an instinctive level. She knew that they weren't really people, weren't even ghosts in the proper sense of the word, but she had become so used to them as part of the nighttime world that it seemed wrong, somehow, to watch them being swept away to Eli knew where. She sighed and rubbed her eyes. She wanted to go home to her family, go to sleep and forget about the whole business until morning, but time was short and she was still on the clock. She closed her eyes and slipped into her lucid dreaming state. This was one of her special gifts as a telepath, a form of astral projection that let her walk the borders between the physical world and the realms beyond. There were many things that haunted that liminal state between life and death, waking and dreaming, reality and imagination, and Abby was adept at finding them. Actually, dealing with them was another matter entirely, but it wasn't as if she and Janus had a lot of options at this point. Her dream form rose from the bed, leaving her sleeping body behind, and headed out into the hallway. The hotel was old and full of shades. They whispered and reached out to her as she passed, dimly sensing that here was someone who could see them and would hear their story. They told her of drug overdoses and accidental shootings, of jealous wives and bathtubs full of blood. She ignored them all, brushing through their clutching hands like wisps of fog. These were only the memories of departed souls, not the souls themselves. They were harmless, and the mundanes who stayed here would never even know they were there, except, perhaps, on the night of the new moon, when the veils grew thin between the worlds. Abby exited the building and walked across the skyway to the boarding house. The house was different in her dream sight. It looked like a proud mansion at the height of elegance, with fine paintings and sculptures and polished marble floors. Abby could imagine this place hosting cocktail parties and masquerade balls, where men and women of the nobility celebrated their own prosperity and the end of the great wars that had torn the world apart at the end of the last century. The halls were quiet now, though, and she saw no images of the decadent, self-satisfied revels that must have filled this place at the height of its splendor. There were hardly any shades here, either, and that was all wrong for a building with this much history. The ones she did see were quiet and skittish, peeking out at her through mirrors and picture frames. They did not speak, did nothing to draw attention to themselves. A silent dread filled the house, as if the remaining shades somehow knew what had befallen their fellows, and now hid from the thing that had caused it. Abby found it difficult to navigate through the building, since many of the walls and doors that she had seen when she was here yesterday were not present in the dream house. She reached out for Wells's mind and found it, then used it as a homing beacon as she passed down long corridors and up grand, spiraling staircases. The place that had become his flat was a child's bedroom in the original mansion, a fact made clear by the bright colors of the walls and rugs and the many toys that lay scattered around the room. There was no sign of the children themselves. If there were any shades here, they were even more deeply in hiding than the others in the house. Abby shivered. The room felt desolate and much too quiet. There were no happy, loving memories left in this place. A tense, watchful air filled the room, 
Abby felt eyes on her, the eyes of something cold, ancient, and inhuman. Wells lay sleeping in the far corner, his modern, full-sized bed oddly juxtaposed with the rest of the room's contents. His aura glowed around him, a pale blue light tarnished with patches of sickly yellow-green. Abby supposed that was the cancer slowly spreading through his body, consuming him from the inside out. As she looked more closely, she saw a third force acting within his aura, an emerald-green energy, subtle but powerful. It wrapped itself around his brain and heart, like a vine growing around the trunk of a tree. It also sent out roots that buried themselves in the yellow-green energy of the cancer, and in those places the sickly light was weaker and seemed to advance more slowly on the surrounding blue. Abby realized that the vines, whatever they were, were feeding selectively on the rampant, out-of-control life force of the cancer. Like the death-aspected mana therapy used to treat cancer in modern hospitals, the vines were prolonging Wells's life by hurting the disease more than they hurt the host. Abby looked around for the violin, wondering if she would see lines of green energy tracing from it to Wells. She didn't. The corner where the instrument should have sat was bathed in shadows, a swirling pool of darkness that hid everything within it. Abby concentrated, and her third eye opened, releasing a beam of cool blue-white radiance into the gloom. The effect was not what she anticipated. Normally, her soul light was enough to dispel any darkness she encountered on the dream plane. This time, the darkness responded like a living thing, recoiling from her light as if burned. It pooled behind the violin to form a deeper, darker shadow, one that licked up the edges of the wood like fire before shrinking away again with an angry hiss. Red pinpricks of light glared at her balefully from the shadows, fierce and resentful. Cautiously, Abby drew closer. I'm sorry, she said. I don't want to hurt you. I just want to talk. A chorus of whispers came up from the shadows behind the violin. The light, the light, it hurts, it burns us. Put it out, put it out. All right, Abby said soothingly. I'll put the light away now. Look. She closed her third eye with a thought, and the shadows swept out to surround the violin once more, hiding it from view. The darkness crept within a decimeter of Abby's dream self, and she took a step back, feeling uneasy. See? she said, putting on a smile that felt ridiculously fake. That's better now, right? The whispers began again, dozens of them, all saying different things. Abby couldn't understand most of them, but one stood out more loudly than the others. Why are you here, little girl? The voice was cold, dry, and full of suspicion. Abby bowed, then spoke in a carefully formal tone. I wish to speak with the fair lady who has blessed Isaac Wells with her gifts and her power. Do I have the honor of addressing her? The darkness around the violin muttered with agitation. A cool breeze blew through the room, carrying the scents of cinnamon and jasmine. A bright emerald light appeared behind Abby and then vanished, as if someone had opened a door and stepped through it. I am she... The woman's voice was rich and sensual, 
and it carried an air of unquestionable authority. Abby turned to face her, and... Looking back on events later, she would be unable to recall exactly what she had seen. Vivid, fragmentary impressions were seared upon her memory. The perfect curve of one hip, the shocking crimson of long, flowing hair, an expanse of flawless alabaster skin. Every glimpse spoke of an unparalleled feminine perfection, so transcendent that a mortal mind could not encompass it all at once. The creature was beauty personified, and it was something else besides, for out from that vision of perfection burned the eyes, twin points of luminous emerald fire, alight with feral intensity, empty of anything that could be called humanity. Those eyes were hunger and need and an utter contempt for the feeble, flickering candle of mortal life. Abby's mind spun with wonder and terror, and she fell to the floor, weeping uncontrollably. The fairy spoke again, the deceptively soft words falling like hammer blows on Abby's astral form. You wished to speak to me, mortal? Speak, then. Even with her forehead pressed to the floor, Abby sensed the amused smile, the flash of long, pointed canines. Your strange talents have aroused my interest. Abby's whole body shook, and she pressed herself against the ground as if she could vanish into it, terrified beyond words that this creature was interested in her. She opened her mouth to speak, but words fled her. The fairy sighed, but Abby could hear a note of pleasure behind it. Oh, very well, she said. For the sake of your feeble eyes, I shall garb myself in glamour. She gestured with one clawed hand, and Abby felt the pressure on her mind ease. Cautiously, she looked up and saw that the fairy's radiant beauty had diminished to something bearable. She now looked merely like the most striking elf-maid that Abby had ever seen, captivating but no longer devastating in her beauty. Abby abruptly realized that she had forgotten to breathe, and she took in the air now in long, shuddering gasps. "'Thank you, my lady,' she said, her voice coming out ragged. "'You are kind to be so patient with my weakness.' I am indeed kind when it suits me, the lady said. She gestured for Abby to rise, and Abby did so. Now speak, child. What would you have of me? Abby thought carefully before speaking. She'd never had any dealings with fairies before, but she knew that it was dangerous to ask them for favors. Even something as simple as answering a question could create a bond of obligation between them. After seeing the fairy's true form, she trembled again at the mere memory of it. She knew that she must avoid indebting herself to this creature at all costs. I have questions that I think you could answer, Abby said. Important questions about Dr. Wells and that violin. Hmm. The Leonanshi sat down on the edge of Wells's bed, stroking his cheek with an idle hand as she did so. Would you be willing to answer my questions? Abby asked. I might. What are the answers worth to you? Abby hesitated. I would not want to offer you something unless it was of value to you, 
she said. Do you have any suggestions? The Fay woman smiled mischievously. I would be willing to answer all of your questions in exchange for your name. Abby winced. I'm sorry, milady, but I mustn't give you that. Abby was no expert on magic, but she knew what a fairy could do with someone's name, given from her own lips. The Leonanchi sighed. Pity. It has been too long since I've had a proper name to play with. She tapped two fingertips on her lips, apparently thinking. Ah, what about a song? Abby frowned. A song, milady? Yes, a song. The fairy's eyes had lit up with the idea, and she showed Abby a feral grin. Give me a song, and I shall answer three of your questions. I'm not much of a singer, Abby admitted. The she waved off the objection. I am not concerned with your level of talent, but it must be a song that is meaningful to you. That is what gives it power. Abby thought about it a moment, then nodded. All right. There's a lullaby that my mother used to sing to me when I was a little girl. The fairy's grin broadened. Perfect. She sat back against the headboard and folded her hands in her lap, giving Abby her full attention. Tentatively, Abby opened her mouth and sang. It was a simple melody, one that she had heard many times in the years before her parents died. It was one of the few memories she still had of her mother, and she had clung to it like a talisman during long, lonely nights in the Westfall Kreche. She had sung it to her unborn daughter, until Victor's madness had taken her from Abby. She had sung it to the children in her breeding cell countless times to lull them to sleep at night. It was a song as close to her as her own heartbeat. Yet, as soon as she had finished singing it to the Leonanshi, Abby could no longer recall a single note or word of it. The Fay woman closed her eyes and inhaled deeply, as if breathing in the scent of something delicious. After a moment, she opened her eyes and fixed them on Abby. Her gaze looked more feral and inhuman than ever. That was lovely, child. I thank you. She gestured an invitation to Abby. Now then, what were your questions? She... she took... Abby shook with suppressed rage, and more than that, with terror. She was one of the most powerful telepaths that Metamore had ever seen, and this... creature had taken her mother's song from her so quickly that Abby hadn't even felt it happening. She had been told that fairies were dangerous. She had never known how dangerous until that moment. She would choose her questions very, very carefully. And that's the end of part two. Come back next week for part three, when Abby asks her questions and Janus gets some surprising new information on Wells and Threnody. David Mitchell said, If you show someone something you've written, you give them a sharpened stake, lie down in your coffin, and say, When you're ready. So, grab your crucifix and follow me into my lair. 
It's time for your weekly writing report. I didn't do any new fiction writing during the weeks of Christmas and New Year's. That's partly because I wanted to spend time with my partner Mel and my friends, and partly because I was hard at work on the audio for Whispers in the Wood. This week I recorded the audio for both this week's episode and next week's. I didn't plan it that way, but the section I had chosen turned out to be about 45 minutes long when it was fully edited, so I broke it into two smaller pieces. I've also been doing various production work, like preparing the print edition of The Lost in the Least, and writing a newsletter for the Metamore City mailing list. Overall, I spent about 20 hours working on writing-related tasks over the last two weeks. Looking back at the month of December, I wrote a total of 6,560 words in 9.5 hours. I wrote on 10 days during the month, averaging 656 words per day. Judging just on the basis of my writing, it was my fourth worst month in terms of production. Compared to November, my word count decreased by 47%, and my writing time declined by 49%. However, I did spend about 55 hours in December working on other tasks for Liminal Corvid Press, including publishing, audio recording and production, and work for the Patreon campaign. I took Christmas Day off from my creative endeavors, breaking my chain after 182 days. Apart from that, though, I have continued to put in time every day on writing, publishing, podcasting, or the Patreon campaign. Speaking of Patreon, we have a bunch of new patrons this month. Please welcome Paul, Sarah, May, Lisa, Andrew, and Kalika Raven. In addition, big thanks to the following patrons who increased their pledges this month. Dan, Bruce, Stephen, Ian, David, Roman, and Arioch. As a Christmas present this year, I sent each of my patrons a holiday card featuring artwork of Kate, David, and Morgan decorating for the solstice. Ben Clifford did the illustration, and I'm really happy with how it turned out. I also sent all of my $3 patrons and above a free ebook of A Wizard Family Solstice. If you'd like to support this show and help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the single best thing you can do. Your monthly support helps me pay for things like web hosting for the podcast, software like Vellum that helps me produce better-looking books and get them to market faster, bonus artwork from talented artists like Randall Fulton and Ben Clifford, and, oh yes, important stuff like food and winter clothes and vet bills. Bottom line, because people like you support this show, I get to keep making it, instead of going out and getting a second job or taking a bunch of overtime at work. So thank you, because between you and me, this is a hell of a lot more fun. To find out how you can become a patron, and to check out our reward levels, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. 
That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2009 and 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.